amen. I invite you to take the Word of God this morning and open it to the Old Testament book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, verse 6 to 18 is our text for this morning, New New Testament, Old Testament book of Ruth, you'll be looking for a while if you're looking in the New Testament, Old Testament book of Ruth, round about the eighth book in, be looking this morning at verses 6 to 18, Ruth chapter 1. I'd like to ask that you would stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it together this morning. These are the words of God Almighty who has created everything, including us. So let us listen to what he would speak to us this morning from Ruth chapter 1. Let's begin together in verse number 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture. Father, we thank you for this account recorded for us. Lord, would you instruct us from your word this morning, we pray. Lord, would you help us in our lives to find our only hope and our only security in following after you. Father, would you help us to shed the desires of this life, the things of this world that might draw us away from you. 
that you would help us to keep our focus on Christ, that you would help us to walk faithfully with you. Father, we pray that you would do your work of salvation for those who are not trusting in you here this morning. Help each of us to see our need of Christ and give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, we humbly pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you may be seated. It's always interesting to me to learn about the background of some of the hymns and the hymn writers of the songs that we sing. Many times, songs have been born out of deep sorrows in people's lives and the authors of hymns that have written them. This is especially true of a man by the name of William Cooper. He lived during the 1700s, and his mother died when he was a young child. He was somewhere around the age of six when this happened. In his life, his father didn't really have much to do with him at all and sent this young child at six off to boarding school when his mom had died. There in that place, he found himself very ostracized from students, made fun of, secluded. He didn't fit in. He began a life where he struggled with depression. After he graduated from this boarding school, he was studying to become a lawyer, and he studied as an apprentice for 10 years. And it was 10 years after uh, that he graduated that he came to have an exam to practice law on his own. His depression in his life came upon him very strongly the night before he was to take that exam. And he had a breakdown, mental breakdown, we might call it, on that night before his exam. And he never made it to the exam the next day. In fact, he found himself in a mental institute the next day. And it was during that time that in his life, William Cooper, that he was converted. There was actually a uh, pastor that was working there in that place that would strategically try to place Bibles to where people would find them. And that was the case with William. He was outside one day and he sat down. There happened to be a Bible there. He picked up the Bible and he began to read from the scripture. And I want to quote uh, from, from a very uh, uh, secure source, five minutes in church history that you can find uh, online that retells the account of his conversion. And so listen as we read what happened in his life. It says, he turned to the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, which he said showed him the mercy of the Savior. He then knew that he had to go to the book of Romans. So he turned to Romans 3.25 where he read, quote, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. It was upon reading this verse that Cooper said he was immediately converted. He wrote, quote, the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. 
And so he ended up in a town where there was a pastor by the name of John Newton. And John Newton encouraged him in his hymn writing. He was a poet. He was very uh, uh, much into writing poems. And probably if you're like me, you're most familiar with one of his hymns that is titled, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, right? Many of us, if we're raised in the church, we grew up singing that beautiful song. William Cooper wrote that song. There's also another hymn that he's famous for, and it's uh, less known, but it's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And I want to read uh, that for you, this hymn that he wrote. Just listen. You can hear. We just gave a brief sketch of his background. There's a lot more uh, that you could look into this man. But listen to how he speaks about God moving in the difficulties in life and the mysteries of life. He says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable, unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a, fr a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. This song encapsulates so much of what we are seeing in the book of Ruth and in the life of Naomi that we have been looking at. Much of William's life is, is echoed through these accounts of many of the dark providences that we find ourselves in in this life. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks in the book of Ruth, the clouds you so much dread, as Cooper says, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. God is working out his plan. We saw that last week, not only in Naomi's life, God is working out his plan in each of our lives. And today we come to a section of the book that records Naomi's return to the land of Judah and to the land of Bethlehem. The author opens up in verse seven, 6 and 7, and we get the scene. So let's just quickly look at that as it opens. Verse number 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Remember where Naomi is. She's living in the land of Moab. Last week in the verses, we saw why she was there. There was a terrible affliction that she found there. She was living during the time period of the judges when everybody was doing what they thought was best to do. It was very chaotic in the land of Judah. We remember that there was a time of famine. There was a time of drought. This was from the Lord in judgment upon them because just 50 miles away in Moab, there was rain, there was crops, and so that's where she went. And we saw while she was there, she lost her husband, her two sons that 
were married, they both died, and so she found herself in this difficult place in Moab. And so she hears in verse number six of what was happening in Judah. So she heard word about this. The text doesn't tell us how she heard about it, but she heard that there was food in Judah. This was a gift of God, even a grace of God that Naomi was able to hear about this, this new situation in Israel. And the text tells us here that the Lord had visited his people. That's what she heard. The Lord had visited his people. This is a pretty key word here of visited. As Daniel Block in his commentary points out, a visit from the Lord could be either a good thing or a bad thing in the scripture. It's bad in the sense of God is said to visit his people in judgment, right? That he has come upon them for their unfaithfulness. For example, Exodus 20 verse 5 under the second commandment against making a carved image, God says he is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. Right? So that's a visiting of judgment. But likewise, visit could be a positive thing. Like when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were praying for God to deliver them. And we are told that the Lord visited them. He came in a way to bring salvation and rescue. And it was good for them. It was a positive thing. So that's what we see here. We see an image once again of God visiting his people. It's the beginning of a sign of grace upon him. And the Lord visited Israel and gave them food, right? The text doesn't say that the people planted and the Lord gave water and caused it to grow. No, it just simply says, look, here's the point. God returned. God blessed them. God is now giving them food and God is the one who has done it. That's the point the author is wanting us to see here. God is moving. God is at work. He's bringing his blessing upon them. He has given them this food. It's come from his hand. The Bethlehem, the place and house of bread is now once again having food. Continues in verse number seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way, excuse me, went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Naomi and her two widowed daughters-in-law had packed up and now they're starting on the road to Judah. And the rest of the scene this morning is going to tell us about what took place on that road. What took place from Moab as they're walking back to the land of Judah. And instead of the author just coming and saying, now here's what happened, boom, 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 he's going to recount this story for us. And we're going to see that it involves Naomi and she's going to be speaking to Orpah and she's speaking to Ruth and she's going to encourage them to both go back to Moab. So that's where we'll kind of hang our hat. We're going to move through this uh, with that in mind. So first in verse 8 through 10, we're going to see uh, uh, this dialogue take place between Orpah and Ruth. Second in verse 11 to 14, we're going to see this dialogue mainly with Orpah, and then lastly, verse 15 to 17, this dialogue mainly with Ruth. So that's what we're going to kind of look at as we walk through uh, these verses. So we'll make points along the way. But let's begin with this first dialogue in verse 8 to 10. If you can kind of imagine it, they've packed up their things. I'm sure they didn't have much. And Naomi is beginning to walk. She's got 
Orpah and Ruth with her, and they begin to pack up and leave from the land of Moab, and they're on their way back to Judah and to Bethlehem, about a 50-mile trek, give or take, roughly here to just shy of Annapolis, something like that. They're making their, their walk there. According to Google Maps, you do that by walking. It's going to take you 20-some hours, according to that. So I don't know, a few days for them to walk back, walking a number of miles each day and resting. Somewhere along the way, as they're walking, Ruth, or excuse me, Naomi, has a conversation with them. In verse number eight, we see it begin. It says, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. It seems like maybe in tough love, Naomi encourages her daughters-in-law to return back to Moab. She tells them, as you see there, kind of interestingly, to return to your mother's house that phrase there is used basically to say, look, I am releasing you to marry, to remarry. Go, go back, start your life over, return home, find men to marry. May God deal kindly with you. You've been kind to me. You've been kind to the dead, and now I'm releasing you. You see in verse number nine, she says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Again, another request for the Lord's blessing on them. They kissed and they began weeping together. You can kind of picture the scene here. A lot of emotion taking place between these ladies. Just think about for a moment what all they had been through. Just think about even with Naomi. She had lost her husband. Her husband died. Her two sons had married Moabite women. And probably when her husband died, if that happened while uh, the daughters-in-law were there, there was a consolation that they would help each other. And then her two sons died. So her two sons died. So you have three widows here, three ladies. And it comes in this point, she's encouraging them to go on. And you can just imagine uh, what they had been through in their lives as they had comforted one another through these difficult times, the bonds that that forms in our lives together. You know that to be true in your own experience, our own experiences to varying degrees. When we go through troubles and difficulties with people, how the Lord knits us together with them. They had been through so much. Emotions are overflowing. They're weeping out loud. They're crying together. And so she's urging them to go on. Their first response we see in verse number 10. It states there, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. All right, so they, they immediately come up. They say, we're not going to do that. We are going with you, Naomi. We're not returning back to Moab. So then Naomi comes and she begins to turn up the heat a little bit more in their dialogue. And that's what we see secondly in verse 11 through 14. And even their uh, response that they give there. So look at what she says as she begins to get a little bit more crass with them. Verse number 11, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? So you see, Naomi is wanting them to see the future that lies before them if they return. She's like, look, there's no prospect of you to marry. She says literally here, have I yet sons in my guts 
right? I don't, I don't have this. She's speaking crassly, telling them, look, there's no chance for you to marry a Moabite coming into the land of Canaan. Then in verse 12 to 13, she continues on, turn back, my daughters, go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she says, look, I don't have a husband, but even if I did, and I had a husband tonight, and even if I had twin sons in my belly, are you going to wait for them to grow up for you to marry them? She's saying, of course not. Consider what lies in front of you. Look at the future, girls. Don't return with me. Return back further. She says, quote, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Quite literally here, this text says, for things are too bitter for me for you to share. She's saying, look at my life. Look at what has happened to me. Look at where I am right now. My life on earth is bitter. It's bad. It's rough. I'm a widow I'm too old to remarry. I have no one to watch out for me, no one to provide for me. If you follow me, this is what you're getting yourself into. She said, God's hand has gone out against me. This has been my lot. Is that what you want to enter into? Is is this the type of life that you want to join yourself into? Now listen, girls, go back, go back to Moab. And in verse number 14, we see Orpah's response. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. The continuing of the emotional scene, they weep. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We see from the next verse clearly that this kiss was a kiss goodbye. Orpah does go back after much crying and kissing But Ruth at this time clings, we see, to Naomi. Now the question that I kind of have in my head as I read through this is, why is Naomi telling her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab, did you catch that, and to their people and to their gods? Shouldn't she want them to worship the God of Israel and not the false gods of Moab? I think what's taking place here is she is truly wanting them to see, look, here is your future. This is what it means if you follow me. And I think we're going to see in a moment with that, coupled with that, is likewise to follow God. Here is what that is going to look like in your life. And she's front-loading it and telling them the truth to say, look, it's going to be rough. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard Here's what it's going to look like. Now, I don't think we're to take from this that Naomi uh, uh, is the picture of an evangelist here in this text, right? But God is using her. God is using the situation that she is taking to force both Orpah and Ruth to make a decision. He's using that about who they're going to follow. It's all tied up into the context of their life. I think we could say from this, God 
I can use a crooked stick to hit a home run with, right? God can take uh, messed up efforts to use that for his glory and for his good. And I think that's what we see here in this place with Naomi. In Israel, Naomi does not know how they're going to manage. There's no welfare. They will be poor. No man is going to be able to provide for them that they see or know of. And it's with this persuasion that Orpah uh, makes her decision. Orpah comes to one of these crossroads, crossroads in her life. And with her eyes, maybe she's looking at this time and she considers moving forward to Bethlehem. And then she looks back and she considers Moab, where life would be much, much easier. Life would be much, much more comfortable for her in this place. But the problem is, and the thing that's a little bit deeper in this text is in verse number 15, we see there, she said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You see how the author is saying there's more going on here than just her returning to a land. There's more than that going on. She's not only returning to what was home, she was likewise going back to her gods. And so Orpah returns to that. Honestly, I think it's hard to know Orpah's spiritual state up until this point. The text doesn't harp on it or really explain it. But I think it's fair to say that here she is turning away from following after Yahweh, especially as we contrast her decision with Ruth's decision. To one degree or another, we see that all of us come to these types of decisions in our life. And this is one of the time periods that Orpah in her life, she had to make a decision. She had been with this family. I have no doubt that she had heard about the God of Israel. I have no doubt in my mind that she had heard about the rescue that God had brought his people out of Egypt, how God came to Pharaoh, how the 10 plagues had come upon the land of Egypt and God miraculously called his people out of slavery, led them through the Red Sea. We know the Moabites had heard about this. Everybody in that region had heard about this. But she had a decision to make in her life. Is that what I'm going to continue to live with? Am I going to continue to follow after this God? She had heard about that, no doubt, in the life of this family as she had married into it. She had heard about these accounts, heard about these things, and uh, we see just by the response of Ruth in a moment that Ruth is going to give. No doubt they had heard about the salvation God provides. She had been exposed to this in her life and now was coming kind of a crunch time decision in a crossroad of her life, quite literally. I can't help but think of the parable of the soils as we consider this from this text. It's that second and third type of soil that when things get difficult, when it's hard in life to follow Jesus because maybe it's not popular, maybe because it's not easy, then that faith quickly begins to dry up, dwindle, go away, and the pleasures of this world, the things of this life begin to call, and that path is one that is walked down. Maybe you were raised in the church and you were getting older and the time has come for you to claim the faith for yourself, for you to make that commitment in your life. In many sense, we all find ourselves in that position. 
But those commitments can be tough. And growing up especially, and I think in, in, in lives of our young people as they grow up and as they begin to get up on their own in those crossroad decisions of life, am I going to follow after God? Am I going to continue to follow after Him and seek after what He has called us to? We see the decision that Orpah is making here those crossroads we find ourselves in. We see it in who we're going to marry, where we're going to go to school, what job we're going to take, what city we're going to move to, what types of things we're going to pursue in our life. What's the baseline decision for us to make all of those decisions to? I submit before you today, it's faithfulness to the Christ who has saved you to live in obedience to him. Because the Bible calls forth and says, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Orpah comes to that crossroad in her life. And it seems as though when she looks at things and the difficulties ahead of her and the things even of following after Yahweh in her life, she is walking the other road back to her gods. She is retreating. That leads us right into this third dialogue with Ruth that we see in this text. Verse number 15, as we said before, we see that Naomi continues and so here Orpah has already left the scene and now it's Naomi and it's Ruth. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So here's what Naomi says to Ruth. Look, she's gone, you go to follow after her. Ruth faced the same decision that Orpah faced. She clearly saw what the future looked like in staying with Naomi. I just put a little side note here. I mean, and let's face it, Naomi doesn't come across as the most pleasant person to be around too. Right? It's not like you say, well, I mean, Bethlehem might be bad, but at least I've got Naomi. Look how chipper she is. Right? That's not her thought. We see a very bitter woman coming across here. God is using that, right? But it must have been a difficult decision to continue on even with her, but even with the unknown. Just think about her for just a minute. Just, just, just think about Ruth, a Moabite, never even gone to the promised land, never even been to Bethlehem. The bleak prospects of even having a husband, the reality of being a foreigner living in this land, not only a foreigner, a hated foreigner, Moabite, how would they survive? Who would help them? Well, she had this decision to make, and her answer is beautiful, isn't it? It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, even the poetic nature of it with which she gives this answer to Naomi. 
hang with me here for just a minute as we look at her answer in verse number 16. Get technical with me for just a second because it's hopefully going to lead to a point here in just a moment if we can find our way back to the point. But consider her answer. It's given in five lines that she gives to her. And it's really uh, uh, poetic in nature in that the first line and the fifth line go together. They say similar things. And the second line and the fourth line go together and say similar things. And the main point is in the middle. Okay, so uh, if you're following me here, like the, there's five lines she gives, the first and the fifth go together, the second and the fourth go together, and you have a beautiful statement in the middle. So let's, let's look at them together. The first line is, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. And then we jump down to the fifth line. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So she's saying there, look, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you. Don't urge me to do that. Nothing but death is going to part us together. That's what she says. The second and the fourth. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And then the fourth, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. You see that she's saying there together, look, we're going to be together. Where you live, that's where I'm going to live. Where you lodge, I lodge. Where you die, that's where I die. Where you are buried, that's where I am going to be buried. You can see the commitment that she is making in her life to this. And then comes that part right in the middle. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. I mention all of that and go through all of that to say that, yes, she is pledging her allegiance to Naomi, but it's more than that. She is confessing her faith in the God of Israel. She is not only pledging herself to Naomi, she is pledging herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh. Right in the middle of this poetic line, it says, and the the verbs are taking out here for emphasis in the text, it's literally, your people my people, your God, my God. And we see this commitment that she is making in her life as she faces this bleak future in front of her. Ruth's faith in Yahweh is revealed in this confession. Don't overlook again the future with which she is making this confession from no husband, no children, no prospect of any of those things in this society and in this time. Many have argued this is one of the greatest pictures of faith in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament picture, I think we could say, of taking up your cross and following after Jesus. Ruth commits her life to be with Naomi and to be with Naomi's God, the one true God. All that lied before her, the difficulties of life that she saw, she said in all of that, I am going to seek to live in obedience to God. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Jesus said it like this in the New Testament in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field 
which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see that taking place in Ruth's life. This is what it means, brothers and sisters, to follow after Jesus. It means losing everything that we have to gain him. Giving of yourself to follow after him and his teaching. Loving God, loving his people. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to follow after him. Anything less than that is a false set of goods. It's a life of commitment. No matter what the future lies, no matter what it might look like, if Christ isn't in it, then it's not to be pursued. It's obedience to Christ and following after him. And that's what we see this commitment being made with Ruth. Even with the bleak prospects that lie before her, she says, your God, my God, your people, my people. You see that community aspect of following after God? She doesn't only say just your God, my God. No, it's your people, my people, right? To be a child of God necessarily means you're a part of the community. You're a part of the family of God. You're a part of that. So Ruth here, and it's amazing, she's not only committing herself to God, do you see how she's committing herself to the people of God? She's not even been to Jerusalem. She's not even been to Bethlehem. It's like, I, it's like coming to a church, I'm committing to this people, I don't know them, but I'm committing to them because they're God's people and I'm God's people and I'm going to commit to them. I'm going to make that commitment to come and to throw myself in because to be a child of God is to be a part of the family of God. And so she jumps right in. No doubt, again, she likewise had heard about what all God had done in Israel, saving his people from Egypt, the ten plagues, all of those things. But she had never seen the promised land with her eyes, but she commits to it. And she commits to the people of God Warts and all, and she's already seen plenty of the warts through Naomi. I just ask you the same sort of question of a crossroad in your life. Are you willing to make the same sort of commitments in your life? Is your commitment to God the same type of commitment that we see this beautiful commitment here in the text? Your God, my God, your people, my people. To commit to God is likewise to commit to other followers of God. That's a theme we see all throughout Scripture. Well, after Naomi heard this response from Ruth, she stopped <coughs> trying to urge her. She says in verse number 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So she quit trying to urge her to go back. And so both now head together to Bethlehem. Orpah walks off the page of Scripture. We don't know anything more about her. She doesn't continue on and have anything to do with redemption and the history of redemption that we're going to see taking place in the rest of this book. 
I can't help but just think of how many times that the world seems to give so much in our eyes and you see people just leaving the things of God to follow after the things of the world. And they think that that's going to give them happiness. And they think that that's going to give them joy. And they think that that, that's just going to be the best life that we can live and and they depart from. And then I, I don't even think she ever gets to hear the rest of the story of Ruth about what God was going to do to somebody who humbly gave themselves over to Christ. Who said, even though the, the future, it's, it's difficult, it's hard, it doesn't look like it's gonna be a whole lot of fun, but if, if this is obedience to Christ, then that's what I'm going to do. And, and Orpah just misses all of those things. You see, that's the lie that the world will say that following after the things of the world is fun and will give you pleasure, which actually in the end, it turns to be the opposite. True life and true joy is only found in following after Jesus Christ, of seeking to live in obedience to him in your life. Even when you go through the difficulties of life of knowing that God is with you, that God will see you through it, and that God has a plan that he's working out in your life. That is where true joy and contentment is found in this life. And that's what we'll see God doing in the life of Ruth and even in the life of Naomi. And I think we all need to be instructed from these things here this morning. God's providence in, providences in life can be tough and are tough and difficult. As we spoke about last week, the, the answer of the why, the why do these things sort of happen, we, we don't have those answers. But we do know that God is working in the midst of it. Make no mistake, again, from these verses, God is at work. God is at work in their life, and God is at work bringing about his plans and his glorious plans. The question that remains in front of you today is, will you trust in him? Will you realize afresh this day how truly amazing Jesus Christ is? How wonderful the salvation that he has provided us that we as sinners can be forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ. That God sent Jesus Christ to live that perfect life that we have not lived, that we have fallen short, that we have sinned in a million ways because we are sinful by nature. But God has sent Jesus Christ to this earth to save us, to forgive us of of our sins. There is no greater truth or news in all the world. To gain the whole world, yet to lose Christ is to lose it all. To follow after Christ is to gain everything. There's blessings that come with that. There's ups, there's downs, but let each of us be committed this morning, no matter where you are in your life, to follow after Christ whether you're a child, whether you're a student, whether you're single, whether you're married or you're home with kids or you're at work or if you're retired or wherever you are in life, whatever those crossroads are, are they're small, are they're big, are you at those positions in life, what's your response going to be to them? I urge you from this text of scripture, trust in God. Follow after him in your life, no matter what 
the cost. No matter how hard or bleak the future might look, follow after him. Again, William Cooper is best remembered from his line in that song, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And it says there again, behind a a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God is at work in our lives. We can trust in him. Will you seek to live in obedience to him in your life? Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the work that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the beautiful salvation that you have given to us. Father, would you help us not to neglect that? Help us not to walk away from that, but Father, help us to grab a hold of it and to seek to please you in the areas and the life that you've called us to live no matter what your providences are upon us, our day-to-day week, our situation we find ourselves in, oh God, help us to live after you, to confess that you are our God. We will be a part of your people. Father, may we lay hold of this truth this day confessing anew, Father, that we love you, we trust you, we trust in what you are doing in our lives, even when we can't understand it. Father, help us to see the beauty of Christ and to trust in you. It's in his name that I pray, amen.